Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the WorkLife podcast. This is a special episode because we're recording this live with Robert Anderson of Eurofound. Hello, Robert. Good afternoon to all the listeners. So we are in Brussels at the Eurofound Brussels office with Robert Anderson, who is the head of the Living Conditions and Quality of Life Research Program. His main research focus is monitoring the quality of life and living conditions in the EU. And his other research focuses on aging and changes in employment over the life course, social inclusion with people with disabilities or chronic illnesses, and the creation of employment in care services. And previously, he's been also working in the European office of the WHO. So thank you so much, Robert, for accepting to be a guest on the Work Life podcast. And to start off, I would like to ask you about your role and how you became head of units at Eurofound. Thanks very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, I think it would be right to underline that Eurofound is a European Union agency where we undertake research across all 28 member states. But the aim is not only to produce research, but to inform policy. And that means particularly policy developments at European level. So we want to reach the key European institutions, but we also hope that we do work that's relevant to national level policymakers. The policymakers we're interested in, in Eurofound, are a mixed group, shall we say, of public officials and government officials on the one hand, but also because of Eurofound's setting up uh, what we call in Europe the social partners. Now all that uh, explained why I perhaps ended up at Eurofound, uh, because I want to emphasise the importance of the link between uh, research and providing information that we hope is useful for the development of social and, and work-related policies. Because I began... Uh, as a researcher. Mm. Uh, and in the 1980s, um, I was doing surveys in the UK, uh, particularly of uh, general practice, primary health care, 
looking at the views and experiences of doctors, but also of their patients. And we continued that work uh, in the late, later 1980s, uh, looking at the experiences in particular of people with chronic illness and disability. Mm -hmm. So how were they being served? What kind of difficulties uh, did they have? And that led us to look at the contribution not only of the formal health and social care services, but the informal providers of care. So that all goes back to the late 1980s, and I did a, a fairly extensive uh, piece of research on the lives of people after stroke. Mm. And we followed everybody who had a stroke in two region in, regions in England uh, for the next 18 months to find out what happened to their lives and what happened to the lives of their carers. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed the people who'd had strokes, and I had a colleague who did complimentary interviews with their families or the friends or whoever was providing care. Mm -hmm. So we had that track of interest um, going during the 80s, and we produced the, some first reports on the lives of carers in the UK and an editorial for the British Medical Journal and so forth. Subsequently, uh, I went off to Germany and did the same kind of research uh, with survivors of heart attack. And then I went off to WHO uh, in Copenhagen, ostensibly to work on the development of a health promotion programme for Europe, but uh, inevitably also uh, talking and engaging there with the colleagues who ran the programmes around ageing in particular. Uh, and at that stage, we started at WHO, at Europe level, 1987, 88, uh, to think about carers. That was work uh, in WHO which is targeted to a medical, mm. healthcare audience. And in truth, uh, much of what we were doing was relevant to the medical profession, but much of it was really about preventing problems. And I'll return to that at the very end mm -hmm. of the talk today, uh, because I think paying more attention to health promotion and prevention, not only for the general public, but also for people with chronic or disabling conditions and their carers, is part of the way forward. And when you look at what can or should be done to prevent some of the problems facing people with uh, health difficulties and their carers. They're not about what the health system can do, but about what can be done more generally in social policy and what can be done to improve working conditions and the quality uh, of jobs. And that led me, when I saw the advertisement, to uh, getting a post in Dublin at something called NOW, Eurofound, but the official title is the European Foundation for the Improvement of Living and Working Conditions. So you understand why they abbreviated it, but it is very much uh, about living conditions and working conditions in Europe and across uh, the member states. You know, Robert, all these years that I've known you, I've never asked you before, so I think it's wonderful that I asked you this question because it's really fascinating. And That was why the answer was so long, I suppose. No, but it's great because 
I always knew you from the carer's angle, mm. um, but of course this now puts this in a whole light and you must have really witnessed the whole policy development and attention on carers, on... Certainly on carers, uh, we've been looking at it since the 1980s. Uh, there were reports, particularly from the United States, there was science going on, mm. but very little of it. Mm. Um, and uh, during the, well, in the late 1980s, um, I wrote a couple of books on uh, chronic illness and disability, but always it included this angle of carers. And over the next 20 years, the, shall we say, the literature and the science of research on caring has developed, mm. but it still had a fairly low profile in public policy. Uh, and we may come to that because the, the carer's agenda has only been visible in the last five or six years. And in the last five or six years, I think we've really begun to see uh, the theme of long-term care move much higher onto the policy agenda it's something now that's uh, fairly central to the social policy committee uh, at one uh, side of the of the um, public debate, but also uh, of big interest to the finance uh, departments, mm. uh, including DG Finance in the Commission, which produces its reports on the implications of ageing for public expenditure, and long-term care is now there alongside um, healthcare and pensions, possibly more problematic in some ways uh, at the moment in terms of budgets and delivery of services. So you mentioned the demographic change and what kind of challenge this poses for policymakers, public expenditure and employers for caring for a much more prolonged period basically. And what other societal issues are there that really pose a challenge currently that you would identify as, okay, these are the top three issues that, that need to be tackled? The, um, the long-term care issue, if I, just, if I may just add, yeah, absolutely. is of huge consequence at the moment because we're finding ourselves with a growing number of older people who need support. And it's not, I think, that the number of years people need support is, is longer, but just the simple numbers mm. of people requiring uh, services in principle is, has increased. But the services to meet the needs of this growing population are, to a considerable extent, not developed uh, in very many of our member states. And unfortunately, uh, the ageing of the population has also only moved relatively slowly mm. onto the agenda uh, of a lot of public policy makers. Um, people will argue that the care provided by family, friends, uh, neighbours um, has been relatively invisible mm -hmm. to the policy audiences, and I think that's uh, quite true. But uh, it has meant that services have failed to be developed, services which uh, in many instances are critical 
to retaining or developing some kind of sustainable balance between informal unpaid care and uh, services that can complement uh, the family care that's been uh, made available. Now, just for maybe the benefit of listeners who may be not so familiar, what exactly are the problems that create um, this situation of more elderly people with longer um, life-limiting conditions or conditions where they cannot take care of themselves on their own, the lack of institutions, lack of services, lack of budget. So, so how do societies feel or experience <laughs> this problem? Let's try to make it visible, perhaps. Well, it's always difficult when you talk about a general picture for the 28 member states, mm. because the, just as a first example, uh, yes, um, aging is um, proceeding pretty rapidly across the member states but to very different degrees and in fact uh, at the moment it's in the Central and Eastern European countries where we're seeing the most rapid change in, in the ratio of different age groups mm -hmm. in the population. Um, at the same time it's in those same Central and Eastern European countries where we have a declining working age population um, and where we have least provision of both home care services and institutional care mm. services. So there is a dilemma um, about meeting needs and the question is well uh, how, how are those care needs going to be met and the answer is by whoever's available to meet them to some extent um, that's to say where services are not available families are in a sense going to have to step in mm -hmm. but even where services are available in those member states that are more developed um, families will continue to provide care because that's what most dependent persons and most families want to do but they will reach or we are we reach limits mm -hmm. and it's quite clear that um, there are issues around on the one hand the quality of the care provided and whether it's really meeting adequately the needs of mm. dependent older persons and so forth and on the other hand the sustainability of the care provision on an unpaid basis mm -hmm. by family members. So to give you an example um, we do something called the European Quality of Life Survey at Eurofound and we've been looking at the circumstances of people who provide care to elderly or disabled family members. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, uh, we found that the uh, proportions of people providing care are quite strongly related to the extent to which the welfare systems are developed mm -hmm. in, in the different member states. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, or could have mentioned, the lowest proportions of people providing informal care are in the Nordic countries. Mm -hmm. But just across the Baltic, in Lithuania, Latvia uh, and Estonia, we have some of the very highest proportions of people providing care to dependent older people, mm -hmm. in part because the formal services are not available. Mm -hmm. But even in the Nordic countries, we do find significant numbers of people 
providing care. And one of the things we've been particularly interested to look at are people of working age. Mm -hmm. I take it um, as a sort of given that when people need care, on the whole, husbands and wives provide care for each other uh, to the extent to which they can. But certainly as um, people uh, age and uh, become widows or widowers uh, and then need care, it's mostly, mostly their children or younger family who are providing the care. And a lot of that younger family are in employment. And the issue then becomes how can those uh, people who want to or need to combine employment with providing unpaid care, how can they do it? Mm. And the answer is some of them can't. Uh, they need to leave employment. And we've done some analysis of the situation of people of working age who are carers, looking at those who are in employment uh, compared with those who are not in employment. And it is very striking that the worst situation is amongst those who are not in a job. That's to say, for whatever reason, they are providing care, but dependent on, presumably, state benefits, uh, carers' benefits and so forth. And they are much more likely, of course, to be in poverty than carers who are also able to stay in a job or mm. have a job. Um, and they're also much more likely to feel uh, that life is difficult for them. They feel more excluded, they're more likely to, re to report they feel lonely and to be without social contacts. So, in fact, this is a group that I think we need to pay much more attention to. Mm -hmm. uh, over the last five years, or even ten years, um, we have paid some attention in the policy debate to reconciling work and care and, and what it means for public policy in terms of leave um, or entitlements uh, to, take, to take breaks from work. Uh, and we've, we've looked at it to some extent uh, in public policy in terms of what it means for initiatives in the workplace to support uh, staff who have care responsibilities. And all of that's very, very important and to, to a considerable extent underdeveloped uh, even, in, even in member states where there are more, uh, there's more interest or has been more interest uh, in the issue. But it is the raw experience of people who are not able to combine work and care that has come through in the research in the last year or so. Before we go to maybe looking at some of these company initiatives okay. that I know you, you have done research on, um, there is some um, knowledge uh, that actually is also coming out from our uh, podcast series. And that is, to, if I may make this parallel, that there seems to be this counterintuitive approach to care uh, especially also in terms of women already for childcare, when somehow the societal pressures, the societal norms about care pressure women into taking part-time jobs or uh, less important jobs because then they can combine their caring with 
their work and also even you know encouraging them to drop out altogether and 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 making this you know that they need to um, take on this as a kind of a full-time commitment whereas we see that if you would actually encourage women to go for the the more the jobs with the more responsibility and they are qualified so if they yes. would go for the bigger jobs they would firstly have more schedule control they would have more flexibility more autonomy to determine their own schedules than in lower paid or less important jobs and they would also have more resources to pay for the care while they're at work so i, I think that what what is your what are your thoughts on this you combined a lot of different uh, yes, I know. <laughs> subjects there. Um, you started talking about norms with regard to care. I think the different expectations of who will provide care are quite uh, strongly reflected in, shall we say, the Western European countries with the difference between the South and the North about the expectation yeah. who will care. Um, as I said earlier, I think... For the, for the EU, we haven't really understood very well what was going on uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, but now it appears not much in terms of formal provision and the, the default expectation um, is that the family will provide care. Now, now we say that and you'll jump on and say, yes, but what you mean, Rob, is that women in the mm. family will provide care. And I think in the past that was probably true. And uh, it's interesting to speculate now uh, with all these reconstituted families, but even more generally um, regarding who in the family provides care, whether uh, daughters-in-law, for example, are still being called upon to get involved as much as they were in the past. Mm. Because many of those daughters-in-law now are in a job. Yeah. And that was the previous rationale, shall we say, the economic rationale, the men were in uh, well, better paid jobs. And that, of course, is not necessarily, not necessarily the case uh, anymore. The Social Protection Committee, which is coming from the member state um, and ministries, um, produced a report last year on long-term care. And the report on the first page says, we've got to do something about long-term care because the availability of carers is diminishing. And the capacity of people to provide unpaid family care is going down. Now, there must be, there probably is some truth in that. But we don't see that expressed yet in, in the surveys that ask people what their preferences are mm -hmm. for care or in the proportion of people who are providing care. What it does mean, of course, what the demographics do mean is that the likelihood that you or I will become a carer has gone up because there are simply fewer children, for example. The smaller mm -hmm. family sizes mean the probability of us being carers has increased. And I think this is a factor uh, increasing the, shall we say, the visibility of men in care because it's no longer like it was 50 or 60 years ago that one of the children in the family, nearly always a woman, got designated as the carer. It's all of us now it's our, our business mm -hmm. to get involved uh, in care. So just to, just to clarify, so the assumption here is because there are more women in the workforce, actually more people in general in the workforce, yeah. smaller family sizes, more elderly people needing care, it's just a mathematical conclusion that 
that we need to do something about this because... Yes, it is. And you can still say to me, yes, but um, there's still big differences between men and women. And there are, both in the proportion who provide care and in what they do. Mm. So men are very good at gardening, driving, uh, filling in finance forms and, yeah, doing a bit of helping around in the house. Uh, women tend to do much more of the long-term intensive uh, personal care, the feeding, the dressing, the toileting, mm. and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that's still true across the member states, but it is changing, is what I would argue. And I, uh, I see that the experience of many people in my age group is both men and women find this a meaningful issue already mm -hmm. and one that they think will become more important in the future. But how do people cope with it? As you say, uh, even in the data I was talking about before, uh, when we look at the working hours of carers in employment, on average, they're fewer than the working hours of non-carers in employment because people are often making some kind of arrangement Mm -hmm. to make the provision uh, of unpaid care um, sustainable. Working fewer hours has consequences. Um, you get paid on, on an hourly basis, so you end up probably going home with less money. The research also suggests that people who are um, less visible in the workforce may be less uh, likely to get promoted and yeah. develop careers. Uh, they can, they can, and they really, I think there are some disadvantages for carers, even if they are uh, in employment. So um, we ask what employers can do, mm -hmm. and first and foremost, what they can and do uh, do is improve the working time arrangements. Uh, consider whether. Uh, some flexibility around working time uh, is feasible and very, very often it is. And in those companies where initiatives have been taken, the thing that is nearly always done is arrangement for part-time work or some kind of flexibilisation uh, of working hours. Um, I may say that in the last mm, decade we've done a couple of uh, attempts at documenting company initiatives for carers and it has not always been very easy to find companies who are doing anything uh, specifically for <coughs> carers in their workforce. But is this also because carers remain visible? There is still There's a kind still... of a stigma or you know I'm not going to tell my boss or my colleagues that I'm a carer because they're going to say, oh, she's just going to be problematic. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, that is part of the story. And uh, one respects also that a lot of carers don't want to be visible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't, they, they feel that uh, um, it's a private matter that they can, they can deal with. Um, and they don't wish to have any uh, special treatment, so to speak. Um, they are keen not to be labelled as somebody um, receiving special benefits. Uh, nevertheless, um, human resource departments recognise that there are issues for carers um, and, you know, put politely, it's not just presenteeism, it's the fact that an accommodation can 
relatively easily be reached around working time mm-hmm. uh, in many, many enterprises. And that's what we find companies doing, whether it's an organisation of regular working hours or giving people opportunities for emergency leave or taking a break mm. um, in order to provide care at a more intense level for a period of time. Yeah. Um, even in some organisations taking a longer break yeah. um, and being able to return to work, uh, which is an important issue for a lot of mm. carers who exit employment or exit the labour market because it's incredibly difficult sometimes for them to get back into the labour market, especially as they're a bit older. And we've done some reports um, of fairly exceptional companies who are also providing support to their staff to organise their care or organise the care for their dependent relative friend or or whoever Um, and even sometimes help them to um, sort out any of the finances uh, involved. Um, you mentioned um, paying for care. Paying for care is an extremely mm, hot potato, I mm. would say, in Europe at the moment. Um, finding good quality services is, is an issue in a lot of member states. Uh, and then being able to afford care services uh, is beyond a lot of uh, families. Most um, member states are seeing some developments in home care, community-based home care services um, and with very different financing in the different member states. Um, But um, in those countries where people are required to pay privately for care services, um, this this is inevitably a problem for, for, for a lot of families. Um, in some countries at the moment, um, care insurance has been has developed uh, on a relatively long uh, term basis, whether it's Germany or Austria or Luxembourg, and that is a serious uh, benefit for those who are seeking to to cover uh, care needs. Um, in other countries. Um, the state has developed some, some forms of um, financial support to pay for care, carers' allowances, carers' benefits. Uh, and that is yeah, very often used to pay for some form of private uh, provision or to pay for some form of uh, home care services. Um, outstanding interest at the moment in countries like Italy, where essentially the care insurance... Um, excuse me, the carers' allowances are paying for significant numbers of migrant women Mm. to uh, come from uh, North Africa and and Eastern Europe to uh, provide services. Our philosophy at the Work Life Hub is to allow employees to bring their whole selves at work and to be able to be who you are with all your personality, but also all your dependencies, basically, whether you have children or older relatives or anybody who needs care and and your care relies on your care part-time, I would think, if you're in employment. And, And a number of surveys really show that when employees can at least be open about their needs, then they can 
they're already more productive, they're more loyal. If they're in a workplace where they don't have to hide, you know, if they have any uh, outside of work such responsibilities, that would maybe scare their unit manager yeah. that they, oh, yeah. this person is a problem, so I'm not going to put them on this important project or I'm not going to give them extra responsibility to grow, learn and develop because they are a problem case. They come in and come out. And, and that's, I think, such a, a catch-22 where what you said is is that they, they still would need to develop, they would need to learn and, and be able to progress in their work not being stuck in, in, in some kind of precarious situation. Yeah. And I, I guess relatively few people have a problem when somebody says, I'm having a baby. Yeah. Um, but it's we, also but so when they contained, right? It's three years, okay. Yeah, well, then they have... Time, also in time, it's a restraint. <laughs> yeah, that, being very cynical true. about it. You no, know? and that's true. I mean, it's a, it's a different message when you say, I'm having to look after mum who's got dementia. Um, partly because it's also about uncertainty. Yeah. You don't know how long no. this might go on. Yeah. Uh, you don't know how much time it's going to yeah. take. Uh, and you do suspect that there are probably aren't mm, adequate services outside. So um, we're going to have to manage this um, within the family yeah. to a very considerable extent. Um, but I think it is becoming, shall we say, more legitimate and more acceptable for people to say, I'm, I've got to provide time to care for yeah. somebody. Um, there's no doubt that in the cases of good practice that we talked about and the companies that mm. have developed uh, support, a lot is about the attitudes mm. of the line managers Absolutely. and the co-workers yeah. and the feeling comfortable in taking advantage of... Um, services or supports or flexibility yeah. that will enable you to sustain employment and care. Yeah. Um, I know the, another way around that from some of the surveys of carers, um, they have indicated to us or to researchers how important it is to have a job, not just yeah. because of the money, not just because of the, um, the engagements, shall we say, in the job, but because of the social support and the break yeah. that they get from the care responsibilities at home. And certainly in my organisation, um, talking about one's care responsibilities is, is quite acceptable. As you say, it's another story perhaps when you say then I have needs like A and B and I can't do this and I can't do that. Yeah. But as I say, I think that reaching an accommodation with people's care obligations and care needs is generally um, manageable. Yes, and, and and what I find also as the the, the last frontier <laughs> to break in, in this whole discussion around reconciling work and outside of work responsibilities, child care, elder care, whatever it may be, is especially for an, when it's possible for a knowledge economy, workers, employees, is to break down these industrial working hour patterns and accept that you may have private time during the day. We see this a lot with women who are more in, in, in bigger jobs, that they would work something that's the split shift, yeah. that they would work some hours during the day with normal office hours, but then, then take go pick up their kids, um, 
be there for dinner, for soccer practice, whatever it is. But then once the children have gone to bed, they would, you know, put in the extra time. Yeah. So I think this is also especially for, for carers needs. You know, if you know, just before eight in the morning or just after six in the morning, if you're available, that if you have a full time job, that doesn't help anybody because the cared for person would like is probably their medication. They would like to meet you during the day and go for a walk, take them out. So but to this have is, this flexibility. Yeah. Uh, but may I say, this is also where striking a balance between the formal and the family care provision is important. It's, it's quite understandable that formal carers go in twice a day at times when, it's, when you're not there yeah. uh, and provide necessary support. Um, it's also interesting, I think, to speculate on what um, technology yeah. is going to do for us in the very short term. Yes. Um, lots of initiatives uh, in Europe around what technology can, can do uh, in, in relation to care. And again, some rather simple things I think are very important. Um, being able to monitor yeah. how the, the, the person at home is, um, is now relatively straightforward. Um, communicating uh, with smartphones is also uh, quite feasible. And in the future, I suspect a lot more opportunities will be there for technology to help in this reconciliation yeah. uh, of work and care responsibilities. Absolutely. So Robert, before we come to the last question, because time is always too short, would you just re remind the listeners of the website and where they can reach you and where they can contact you? <laughs> Our website is uh, www.eurofound.europa.eu and as I say, um, we produce reports uh, which are all free, um, all downloadable and getting shorter and shorter uh, to make them more readable. Um, we will be doing another uh, survey later this year uh, where we're going to ask, ask more questions than we did previously. Um, about being uh, a carer and about people's experience with care services, actually both childcare and mm -hmm. uh, long-term care services. We've just published a, a report at the end of last year, beginning of this year, on um, the changing interests or, in, yes, changing involvement of employers and trade unions in this debate. Uh, around reconciliation of work and care and we will uh, continue to um, explore that as an issue which is increasingly on the agenda uh, not only in member states uh, but also here at European Union level. Mm. Well in any case we will put these links to into the show notes so people go there and, and download and have a look at these reports and also find you. Yeah, sure. So um, now coming to the last question, Robert, if I could ask you to, if you could give one advice to a manager, a general manager, director, CEO in a company to prepare for this um, societal phenomenon or to make an impact in the well-being of his or her employees in this regard, what, what would that advice be? I guess to acknowledge 
that this phenomenon of um, aging is not only happening to the general population, and we've talked all about care needs, but it's happening in the workforce as mm. well. And most European workforces uh, have average ages already in the mid-40s, uh, but the proportion of uh, most workforces between 45 and 64 uh, is increasing. And these are the workers who are most likely to have or develop um, care responsibilities for both dependent older relatives and probably also still their younger children. Um, and my message is that there are many uh, predictable consequences mm. of becoming a carer and thinking about how to prevent some of those predictable consequences is very well worthwhile. So thinking about investing in the health of workers as they age, mm. thinking about the uh, scope to have working time arrangements in particular that prevent the breakdown of either work or care is probably uh, an excellent uh, strategy for human resources in a medium-term perspective. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Robert. I really enjoyed this podcast and, and learned again a lot, and I'm sure our listeners as well. Thank you very much indeed. It was a pleasure. <laughs>